Eagles Entertainment. With the 10th pick in the 2021 NFL Draft, the Philadelphia Eagles select... You're listening to the Journey to the Draft podcast. Welcome to the Journey of the Draft podcast presented by Life Brand. I'm your host, Fran Duffy, and we are wrapping up our divisional recaps of the 2021 NFL Draft with our last two divisions today in the NFC and AFC South, where we start that conversation off in Draft Buzz, where I catch up with Ben Fennel to discuss the Tennessee Titans, the Indianapolis Colts, the Jacksonville Jaguars, and the Houston Texans, as well as some of those teams over on the NFC side, the Atlanta Falcons, Tampa Bay Bucks, and New Orleans Saints. We're going to cover Everything that those teams did in the 2021 NFL draft, talk about the whys behind selections and really just kind of get into the team building philosophy, not who won and lost the draft. We're not handing out draft grades, anything like that. Uh, That's all for other people to do. This is all just kind of talking big picture philosophy uh, with those seven clubs. And then we're going to transition to our second segment, the blueprint, where I catch up with my friend Josh Norris uh, over at the underdog does an outstanding job uh, covering all 32 teams from a fantasy standpoint uh, over there on the underdog, which you make sure you go check out. We'll talk about that later uh, with Josh. We're going to also hyper-focused in on the Carolina Panthers, the last of those eight teams from the South Divisions. We'll do all that in the blueprint. And then we're going to wrap things up with Draft Mailbag. we got a question from you at home. As always, before we get started, rate, review, subscribe. Make sure if you're not subscribed already, now's the time. Jump on and join us on the journey to the 2022 NFL Draft. We're going to be starting to talk about all of these prospects here uh, coming up here for the next class. But in the meantime, we're going to have some big-picture philosophy discussions on scouting-specific positions. We're also... Uh, going to be talk, talking with different analysts, former scouts, former general managers, really around the media sphere. They, it's going to be such fun to talk with these guys and kind of pick their brains about their whys and their processes and how they view the game. So uh, make sure you stay tuned right here on the Journey to the Draft podcast presented by LifeBrand. Uh, that being said, let's get this show rolling. I'm excited to dive into our chat now with Ben Fennel in Draft Buzz. Now it's time for Draft Buzz. All right, let's kick it off here with our final 2021 NFL Draft recap. We spent so much time, Ben, looking at all of these prospects and talking about all these prospects over the last calendar year. Uh, It's fun to now kind of put them to bed. We we have to go through the process of just kind of, you know, going through their landing spots and scheme fits and things like that. So doing our due diligence on on giving these guys their due, we'll be turning the page here to 2022. I know you've already done some deep dives, but uh, let's kind of put this 2021 class to bed and we'll start with the team that had the first overall pick here in 2021, and that was the Jacksonville Jaguars. And I'll quickly run through their selections. Two first-round picks here. Trevor Lawrence, obviously, number one overall. Travis Etienne, the running back from Clemson, later in round one. Day two, got corner Tyson Campbell, offensive tackle Walker Little from Stanford, and Andre Sisco, the rangy free safety from Syracuse. And then on day three, USC defensive tackle Jay Tufele, UAB pass rusher Jordan Smith, Ohio State tight end Luke Farrell, and wide receiver Jalen Camp, from Georgia Tech. So, uh, Ben, we've, we've talked about Trevor Lawrence. we talked about the fit in Jacksonville with Urban Meyer. We could kind of put that one aside. I'd rather talk about the Travis Etienne selection, especially because of what's come out since the pick. Uh, in your mind, what went into the selection here for Travis Etienne ending up in Urban Meyer's offense? Well, I think it was important to grab a dynamic playmaker from the backfield to add to James Robinson and LaVishka Chenault. They only had seven explosive pass plays to running backs in 2020. And in fact, three of those were in the same game. So just not enough dynamic playmaking coming from that backfield position. Travis Etienne, I think, can contribute in both phases. But you have to remember, Urban Meyer is not going to make Trevor Lawrence drop back 50 times and have an air raid offense. He, Urban Meyer is from a spacing spread offense, 
but it's very much a run dominant spacing spread offense. They're going to be handing the ball off a ton, incorporating a lot of RPOs. A lot of the things that Trevor Lawrence used at Clemson. Don't just throw him the ball and say, drop back 60 times and win us games. You got to make sure you're handing the ball off with a balanced offense. And I think Travis Etienne is a great player to pair with Trevor Lawrence. And we've seen those two paired before, and there's uh, been some pretty good results. I don't want to dive too deep into the rabbit hole here, but what do you make of the wide receiver discussion with Travis Etienne? And, you know, obviously he practiced there uh, exclusively during the, the, the mini camps and recent OTAs. Uh, to me, like looking at the structure of that Urban Meyer offense, uh, you know, we've seen these guys, the, the Percy Harvins, the Curtis Samuels, the, those hybrid kind of slot back players that are, you know, part running back, part receiver feel like that's kind of the role that they envision. And I think it's notable that after the draft, Urban Meyer came out and said, hey, we really wanted Kadarius Toney. That was the guy that we targeted. We, you know, I felt terrible when we couldn't get him. So I was like, all right, who's the next explosive uh, you know, hybrid player that's on our board? And then it defaulted to Travis Etienne. Yeah, it's a really good point. And I think uh, Etienne has that profile of being a slot back or maybe just a satellite perimeter back for like third down. So his ability to contribute in both phases, you probably don't want him running between the tackles 20, 25 times a game. I'm sure he's going to be a backfield by committee with James Robinson and a couple other guys back there figuring out what Etienne can do in sub packages and on third down, I think is crucial involving him in the screen game and running more traditional receiver routes, which he did later on at Clemson and really improved his hands and route running later on at Clemson. I think he's going to be one of the premier playmakers for this offense, find different ways to use him. And I think urban's the right guy for that job. Yeah. I think that just saying, Oh yeah. You know, Travis Etienne wide receiver and expect him to just run uh, option routes over the middle of the field and, you know, and running deep posts from the outside. That's not the usage. I think it's kind of looking back over the course of urban's career and understanding uh, the usage there, um, you know, and you can make the argument, Oh, well, isn't LaVisca Chenault in theory, that kind of player, uh, obviously urban Meyer and Trent Balky, not there uh, when they drafted LaVisca Chenault. So I think uh, Chenault's going to be a little bit more of like an H back role for them. Yeah. And I see ETN being more of that slot gadget back, Mm. but certainly a place for both of them. No question. So uh, let's now get to the next one here. Surprise day one impact. So uh, this one will be me here. And I'm just looking at this depth chart and looking at some of these picks. And I think that, you know, look, their first pick in round two was Tyson Campbell, the corner out of Georgia, a guy you and I uh, both liked. And they took CJ Henderson in the first round a year ago. Uh, You know, they spent some money in the, in the secondary, uh, over the course of the the free agent period, they went and they got Shaq Griffin from the Seattle Seahawks. So people look at that and say, where does Tyson Campbell kind of fit in here? But remember where defensive coordinator Joe Cullen comes from. And he's a defensive line guy. Uh, He's been more more focused on the front. But that said, he comes from Baltimore. And what do we see from Baltimore? Heavy, heavy sub package. Um, And one of the comparisons we made to Tyson Campbell in the pre-draft process was Marlon Humphrey, who never played in the slot over the course of his career at Alabama. But once he got into the NFL, he's kind of found a home inside. I wonder if they see a similar kind of career path for Tyson Campbell transition to the NFL. Maybe he sees some more time on the inside and it's more of an impact in year one than people expect, considering C.J. Henderson on the roster and Shaq Griffin on the roster. Yeah, There's a very good chance they see four new bodies on the back end of that defense yeah. this year with Cisco, Tyson Campbell. You got Shaq Griffin coming from the Seattle Seahawks. So definitely some new bodies and new personalities on that back end to 
you know, clearly they need stability back there. I think CJ Henderson really flashed early last year. And if he kept that going, he might've been a defensive rookie of the year candidate, but then had some injuries later, later on in the season. But I love the addition of Tyson Campbell, love the Andre Cisco, even an undrafted guy like DJ Daniel, just a tough, scrappy player, obviously a, a college teammate of Tyson Campbell. I really like some of the new bodies on the back end. Looking at those day three picks, Tufele, Jordan Smith, Luke Farrell, Jalen Camp, who's got the highest ceiling in your mind? I got to go with Jay Tufele. I yeah. mean, he didn't play in 2020, but you put on his 2019 tape, and it makes you sit back in your chair and say, if he keeps building on this and keeps developing, he was on a trajectory of being a first-round pick. Yep, right. But obviously – you know, stop traffic in 2020. I didn't play. So you, your game kind of just sits there and idles based on where it was in 2019. This is a very explosive, loose kind of a dual threat interior rusher that is good against the run stout at the point of attack, but it was a guy that can get into backfields and can get up the field and actually has some really good change of direction and short area bursts. And I think his best football is ahead of him. And he may very quickly leapfrog a guy like Taven Bryan, who was a first round pick just three short years ago. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Too, too fail, you would be, it would be fair to say that if he had played a full season, even if it was just the, the COVID shortened season for USC, Chances are he's not there uh, where they selected him early round four. Um, let's now go just kind of over the top. Any big takeaways looking at this first draft with Urban Meyer and Trent Baalke at general manager. Baalke has a history as a general as a GM uh, out in San Francisco. He was out there for a handful of years. So there, there's some background there. But just kind of looking at the first time these two have worked together, just seems like for the most part, name brand schools. Guys that were top recruits, which you would, I think you kind of expect sometimes, uh, with a guy, especially a guy like Urban Meyer coming from the college level, and then toolsy players. You know, we talk about a Jalen Camp and the and the upside he brings. All these guys, I mean, for the most part, you look at the Tyson Campbells and the Ciscos and the Littles and obviously Etienne and Lawrence. All these guys, top end talents. Jordan Smith was a Florida recruit, so while he didn't come from a Power Five program, he was a big time guy coming out of high school. So uh, those were certainly some of the themes that stood out to me. Was there anything else uh, that stood out to you? No, not particularly. I just love the uh, aggressiveness with not being too scared of the boomer bus injury guys with the Walker Little, Andre Cisco, particularly on day two. I'm sure there are a lot of teams that said if these guys are sitting here on day three and round four, we're all over them. Who is going to be the team to go get them on day two and be a little aggressive and not scared of that injury background? There's a very, very high ceiling on both these kids. If the injuries check out, they might be able to walk away with really good players on day two with Tyson Campbell, Walker Little, Andre Cisco. By the way, that is a, a big-time theme for Trent Baalke during his time in San Francisco. Just some of the guys that they selected. Just on day two uh, of the draft during his time at GM, um, they took Tank Carradine out of Florida State. He had a major injury history. Brandon Thomas tore his ACL during the pre-draft process. Chris Borland, obviously he retired early. He also had some injuries at Wisconsin. Will Redmond, the corner from Mississippi State. You can go down the list. They've had a bunch of – he has a lot of history – drafting guys that have fall through the cracks uh, due to injury concerns. All general managers are looking for, for an edge. Where is that edge we can get? He clearly fused, hey, we can get guys a little bit later than they normally would have gone had they been healthy. Uh, that's certainly something to keep an eye and on. And Fran, there. really quick before we put these Jags to bed, because yeah. unique scenario, new head coach, new GM. I love these types of teams in the summers because I think it's open season. It doesn't matter what spot you were drafted, how you got here, who picked you, if you were a former first-round pick, even if you are a first-round pick last year. Everybody's jobs are up for grabs this yep. summer. And I love teams like this that you added a lot of bodies off the streets, some veteran presence, a lot of youth in the draft, obviously. But nothing is settled. 
So I just love the opportunity for guys. Like I already mentioned DJ Daniel out of Georgia, undrafted. I love guys like that just to say, you know what? It doesn't matter where I am on the pecking order. I can claw my way up and earn a spot on this football team. It makes it fun to follow from a competition standpoint. We're going to go through that here in Philadelphia here this year, uh, obviously with the new staff being instituted on a coaching standpoint. You see a lot of competition, and uh, we'll see. Uh, the cream typically will try and rise to the top. Uh, let's get down to the Indianapolis Colts, and we'll run through their, their picks uh, really quickly here. Quiddy Pay, the pass rusher from Michigan in round one. Deo Odengbo, the pass rusher from Vanderbilt in uh, on day two. Day three, a bunch of picks here after some trade downs. You've got SMU tight end Kylan Granson, Florida safety Sean Davis, Texas quarterback Sam Ellinger, wide receiver Mike Strawn from Charleston, West Virginia, and then Will Fries, the offensive lineman from Penn State. So let's get to the first-round pick here in Quiddy Pay. In your mind, Ben, uh, let's talk about the first-round pick. Why do you feel like Quiddy Pay ended up with the Colts? Well, I think certainly they want to replace Danico Autry, the veteran Justin Houston at the defensive end spot, and they love run-first defensive ends. I'm not sure some of the guys they have – on the second and the third line, they love as early down players, whether it's Kamoko Ture or Ben Banigou, uh, a little bit more in the 250-pound sub-package type of skill set. So I love seeing Quiddy Pay in there. They already went and got Isaac Rochelle coming over from the Los Angeles Chargers as well. Deo Dengbo in the second round, injured, but another heavy defensive end, run first player, tough, stout, physical player. Quiddy Pay, I think, will get along really well on this defense. We know what he provides. He's a stout player. He's a tough player. He's a physical player. Maybe a little tight, a little, uh, you know, still working on his pass rush repertoire and figuring out what he can provide. But in order to play on this Colts defense, you got to stop the run first. And I think Quiddy Pay is going to be welcomed with open arms on this group. And, and dude, this is this is why we have these conversations year round about connecting the dots and trying to follow the breadcrumbs with uh, draft decision makers and coaching staffs and scheme fits. Because if you look at Quiddy Pay, you just mentioned schematically how he fits into the identity of that defense. And you look at Chris Ballard. Uh, we had Zach Hicks who does a great job covering the Colts uh, for SI.com on the podcast over the, the course of this offseason. He talked about some of the things he looks for, Chris Ballard. In his, in his edge rushers and the explosiveness, high motor, first step. You know, Even if the guys weren't always great against the run, the Therese and, the, and those types of players, they typically shared those traits, right? And so when you have a guy uh, in Quiddy Pay who has that explosiveness, has that elite testing ability, but then also can slide inside and fits the mentality, the high motor and things like that, fits the identity of the defense, uh, it was a perfect fit. And honestly, I think you could say the same things for Odengbo as well from Vanderbilt, who they got in day two. Uh, let's now go to... And the, real quick, Fran, yeah. just harping off of that, right in the middle of free agency. I love that Darius Leonard tweeted out, free agents. Right. If you guys are thinking about coming to the Colts and play defense, just know that we don't want you if you don't play hard, run to the ball, make plays, or not willing to sacrifice yourself for teammates to make the play. I don't care how big or how little your name is. Hmm. And he just put that out there in the middle of February, right, when everybody was being signed to say, you know what? We don't just want the sexy guys or the guys with huge production. We want a certain personality on this defense. We want a certain type of play temperament on this defense. And he just kind of put it out there. And we see that on their tape on a week-to-week basis. We both really like watching their uh, defensive front. No question. So uh, let's now get to the best fit or situation. Who's got a path to early success 
from this draft class. And I'll tell you what, the, the one guy that they just can't stop talking about uh, in their post-draft press conferences, if you got a chance to watch the behind-the-scenes action from the draft room uh, with the Colts, you could see how excited Frank Reich was about the addition of Kylan Granson, the tight end from SMU. Really versatile skill set, can be moved around the formation. He had issues with drops uh, in college. There were a couple games where uh, he just had a lot of trouble securing the football. But you talk about the athletic skill set and the versatility. I just think to how uh, you know a guy like Trey Burton was used in that similar kind of offense, obviously when Frank Reich was here in Philadelphia, similar kind of usage. Uh, I'm I, that's a guy that I feel, especially with how invested uh, that coaching staff seemed to be in a guy in, in that addition. To me, that's one that's like, all right, let, let's keep this one in mind for a guy who could make an impact in year one. Well, that's who I think is going to have the highest impact out of these day three picks, and one yeah. of the few players last draft class to be through and through listed as an H back by the NFL. Right. He's not a wide tight end. He's really not a move tight end. He's not a fullback. Well, the Colts really don't have a whole lot of that on the roster. So I think Kylan Granson can wear a lot of different hats for Frank Wright with a little creativity. Great reflection on Trey Burton and how he was used that Super Bowl year here in Philadelphia. Trey Burton also spent last year with the Colts once yep. he left the Chicago Bears. He's no longer there. So there's certainly a need for that kind of dynamic athlete, move him all over the offense. He's not going to melt you like a normal fullback. He's not going to, you know, run past anybody down the scene, but a guy that can get open off a of play action, you know, maybe create some yards after catch. Just a guy with a little creative vision can have some really good impact. Uh, it's for me, just kind of looking big picture at this draft class for uh, for Chris Ballard and the Colts. Uh, I think that round one pick with Quiddy Pay is a good indication of just the mindset, right? Because everybody had them penciled in a huge need at left tackle, left tackle, left tackle. They didn't select an offensive lineman until their last pick uh, in day three. So they're not going in saying, all right, this, this is our biggest need. We need to address this now. They're going to go with best player available at an area of need. And obviously, you know, look, they, they needed some help uh, off the edge. They go and they get Quiddy Pay. I don't think they were going into this draft saying, yeah, we're going to double dip and our first two picks are going to be along the defensive line. That's how the board fell for them, uh, and that's the way they went. So that's just an, uh, an idea of how the, they how they approach uh, the draft process. Just keep, it, keep that in mind for them when you're doing mock drafts uh, years from now. Fran, I know nothing about this situation at the moment, but your guess, off the cuff, putting you on the spot, Backup quarterback Jacob Eason or Sam Ellinger Ooh. going into 2021. I mean, it's got I, I got to think that Eason is the front runner considering he was a fourth round pick a year ago. Uh, he's been he's been in the offense a little bit. I think oh, you and I both like Ellinger, but he definitely is more of a developmental type. Will need a little bit of time. So my guess is is that all three make the roster. Eason is the backup in year two. All right, good guess. I'm with you. All right, so uh, let's now go to the Tennessee Titans here. Um, uh, a team that, look, they, they had a lot of turnover this offseason, both in the coaching staff uh, and on the roster. So let's just run through their picks here. Round one, Caleb Farley, the corner from Virginia Tech. Day two, Dylan Radens, the offensive lineman from North Dakota State. Georgia linebacker, Monty Rice. Versatile defensive back, Elijah Molden from Washington. And then on day three, Louisville wide receiver, Des Fitzpatrick. Pit pass rusher, Rashad Weaver. LSU wide receiver and special teams ace, Racy McMath. And safety, Brady Breeze from Oregon. So, uh, Ben, let's go to the top pick here in Caleb Farley. Uh, in your mind, why I see the selection there for the Titans. Well, I think they're trying to turn the page at the cornerback spot. No yeah. no more Malcolm Butler, no more Dory Jackson. We're trying to get bigger at the corner spot. We're trying to get a little more physical at the corner spot. We're trying to get more versatile at the corner spot, playing a little bit more zone as well in 2021. But a guy that if we need to play man-to-man on third down, you can do it. We went and signed Janoris Jenkins in free agency. 
there's a big hole at that other corner spot. So Caleb Farley is a guy that checks a lot of those boxes, just being scheme versatile, athletic, physical player. So a little bit raw, you know, coming over from the offensive side of the ball just two or three short years ago at Virginia Tech. But uh, a guy with a lot of upside, a very high ceiling, just a little bit of the injury concern, which they haven't been afraid to go to that well before whether it's Harold Landry in the second round, whether it's Jeffrey Simmons two years ago in the first round. Uh, So certainly trying to get some new blood at that corner spot. Caleb Farley, Janoris Jenkins will be on uh, both sides in 2021. I'm so glad you brought up the red flag thing. That was the thing I was going to add on as well, is that that's a team that's not afraid if the talent is right. You remember, obviously, Isaiah Isaiah Wilson, the tackle from Georgia last year, that did not work out for them, but Jeffrey Simmons, who had multiple red flags. He, not only did he have uh, the medical, but there was also the uh, the video as well from when he was coming out of high school. Um, you know, they've they've had uh, a handful of picks uh, over the course of the last few years. If the character or if the the talent matches, uh, they're willing to to take that risk if they've got faith uh, in the player. And Caleb Farley, uh, despite the medical history, they uh, they end the slide there for him at the end of the first round. So I like that selection there. Uh, let's get now into the rest of this class. We'll go into a competition edition. I'm going to go to you for this one. Which player? enters a crowded room that they've got to compete with early in uh, in their career? Well, I'd probably go with uh, the Pitt defensive end, Rashad Weaver. It's a good one. I mean, in free agency, we brought over Danico Autry. We yep. paid some big money to Bud Dupree as well. We already have Harold Landry that we'd love to feature on third downs and getting after the passer. And a couple interesting undrafted players as well. Um, so I just feel like it's a little bit of a crowded room. He also had a little bit of an off the field hiccup over the past couple of weeks. So I just think it's a little bit of a uphill climb for him right now in trying to leapfrog some of these free agents that they spent money on in addition to some of the incumbent starters like a, like a Landry. Yeah, uh, to me, like I, I could have gone with Weaver for my next one because that's I'm going to do the uh, the best value pick uh, for this franchise. And I think when you look at uh, Weaver, I think that that kind of makes sense. He's a guy that I think most people expected to go a little bit earlier. But I'm going to go with Elijah Molden, who they got at the end of the third round. And uh, again, it just kind of speaks to the secondary overhaul that you mentioned. A couple of these guys uh, going out. Now you've got guys like Caleb Farley and, and Molden. You know, whether he fits in at safety, where they've got a couple of established guys right now, or if maybe he's the full-time nickel to start. And that... Honestly, if he's this full-time nickel to start, that does not shock me uh, if he's the, the the starter there in sub-package. So uh, I would look at Elijah Molden as a, a player that probably outperforms the draft slot there at the end of round three. Uh, let's go to the next team. Or no, before we get there, just uh, any other big-picture takeaways um, from you know, from this class? I mean, the, the, we talked about the secondary overhaul. I would say you look at those last two players, Racy McMath and Brady Breeze, two very, very established special teams players. Uh, I know that's right up your alley as well. Yeah, I was looking at the receiver group for special teams because obviously Racy McMath, Des Fitzpatrick, and they can use a you know an influx of competition and talent on the back end of the receiver room. You know, we both like AJ Brown. They spent some money on Josh Reynolds in free agency. Nick Westbrook's kind of carved out that third receiver role, and then it's kind of open season. I think Racy McMath and Des Fitzpatrick, being day three players, can really work their way onto the roster through special teams and maybe work their way onto the offensive side of the ball as receiver three or receiver four, just based on uh, you know some availability on the roster right now. Some teams certainly try and target on day three guys that they know can come in and make that impact. So uh, just keep that in mind. Their last two picks, they select two guys that certainly can impact the third phase of the game. Uh, let's now go to our, our final team here in the AFC South, the Houston Texans. Only a handful of picks here. This is a quick one. Uh, day one, obviously no selection here. So day two, 
You've got Stanford quarterback Davis Mills, Michigan wide receiver Nico Collins, who they traded up for. And then on day three, tight end Brevin Jordan from Miami, Garrett Wallow, the linebacker from TCU, and then Ray Lopez, the defensive tackle from Arizona. So, Ben, uh, let's go to the Davis Mills pick. Uh, in your mind, why was he the selection here for Nick Casario uh, with his first, uh, his first run, his first draft pick overall as the general manager for the Texans? Uh, probably one of the tougher picks to assess and try to, uh, make sense of it all, but you have to assume they're preparing for the future and they really like the value that Davis Mills brings Uh, very little experience over at Stanford, but he looks the part and has some really good tape. Just it's small and you don't have a big sample size, but, uh, obviously we all know that a Sean Watson, uh, trials and tribulation, they have Tyrod Taylor and Jeff Driscoll behind him. Davis Mills in the third round, a lot of NFL scouts would say that's great value. That's kind of where we expected him to go, maybe even a little bit earlier. Maybe we didn't expect a Kyle Trask to go ahead of him. A lot of people had Davis Mills as that QB six after the first wave, maybe even sneaking into the back end of round one. So seeing him sitting there in the third round, I think is great value for any team across the league. It just makes it an interesting conversation with the Deshaun Watson uh, situation going there in Houston. Yeah, if you if you don't think Deshaun Watson will be the quarterback, and I think this has been the argument against the selection um, from most of the media is like, look, uh, if you're picking up high next year and you're looking for a quarterback, you know, is da- what can Davis Mills do this year as a rookie to prevent you from drafting a quarterback in the top three or top five a year from now? Uh, mm-hmm. That's that's the the argument against, and I I understand the argument. That said, I also understand the the validation for it as well, where, hey, we really value quarterback. We view Davis Mills as a potential starter down the road. We're picking in the middle of, of the, the second day of the draft. We saw a potential starter. We took him. Um, I, I, I don't really uh, disagree with that logic either. So uh, I could see it from both sides. I think sure. the value is great. It's just the situation is right. the conversation. Exactly. And I, I legitimately mean that. If the Jaguars took him in the third round, I would say that's great value. I know you just took Trevor Lawrence one overall, but Davis Mills sitting there in the back end of round three, that's good value right there. If you feel he's a starter, uh, you can and you can flip him and do all that. I mean, that, that's that's where you get into that discussion. And I do feel, uh, you know, I could see, like I said, I could see both sides uh, of that. Let's now get to the next one here. Surprise impact. Who could shock us with the impact that they have in year one? And I, and I will go with Brevin Jordan, who fell, uh, you know, and who knows exactly why he fell as late as he did. I know he didn't test uh, to the extent that we were expecting him to. Obviously, a really dynamic athlete, great with the ball in his hands, you know, outstanding yards after catch weapon at the tight end position. And, and you know, we, we both liked Brevin Jordan on film. He falls later in the draft than we would expect it. And I don't know if it was because of the testing or if there was something else there from a medical standpoint, but uh, that's a guy that. That can come in and he can give your offense a boost. Uh, no question with his dynamic skill set. Uh, that would be my pick there for the guy that can have that early year one impact. Yeah, that would have been mine as well, too. Just his blocking, the creative uses, the yak. He could stretch the seam for you. little vision with that tight end room. They have some really interesting bodies with Jordan Akins and Cahill Waring from San Diego State a couple years ago. I know we're supposed to pick day three, but Nico Collins being round three, I'm going to kind of cheat here. My prediction is he leads this team in receiving easily. And if you look at this group, Brandon Cooks, Andre Roberts, Randall Cobb, Kiki Kuti, We all like those four receivers, Fran. What's the trend? They're all pretty small. Nico Collins is going to come in right away and just be a different presence in the offense. Have a bigger catch radius, be that true X receiver, be that red zone one-on-one threat just to bail out some 50-50 balls. I think he leads his team in receiving by a whole lot. 
any uh, other big picture takeaways kind of looking at this class overall uh, over the top for Nick Casario and his first run uh, you know, making the calls here for that team. I think overall, just kind of looking at more of a focus on the power five. That was something uh, that was a trend during his time in new England. Uh, they're not afraid to trend older. I thought that carried over from his days in new England. Uh, not afraid of the, the medical red flags. Honestly, that's a big one to keep in mind uh, moving forward with Davis mills being his first pick. And obviously he's mills uh, having a lot of injuries uh, over the course of his college career. Was there, was there anything else that kind of stood out? No, and it's really a tough draft to evaluate. Yeah, exactly. Obviously, no no picks in the first or second round, only yep. five picks total. This wasn't going to be a statement draft by Casario to come in and revamp the roster. They did a lot of that through free agency, which some really interesting veteran bodies, but only having five picks and starting in round three, uh, kind of tough sledding. But really like the Brevin Jordan, like guys like Garrett Wallow on day three and just a special teams value. Uh, a couple of interesting bodies, but just looking at this roster this is another team open season, open season, open season competition right. at every position. Let's go over to the, uh, the NFC. Now the Atlanta Falcons, I'll run through their picks real fast. Number four, overall, they get tight end Kyle Pitts out of Florida day two, the UCF safety, Richie Grant, Michigan offensive lineman, Jalen Mayfield on day three, San Diego state corner, Darren Hall, Stanford center, Drew Dahlman. Texas defensive tackle, Taquan Graham, uh, Notre Dame defensive end, uh, Ade Ogundaji, uh, Avery Williams, the corner and special teams ace from Boise State, and then Arizona State wide receiver, Frank Darby. So, uh, Ben, let's go to the Kyle Pitts selection. Obviously, we talked about this pick a lot coming into the draft. Was it going to be a quarterback? Was it going to be Pitts? Or was it going to be a trade down? In your mind, uh, how do you view this Kyle Pitts selection now that we're a month and change out? Well, it was a philosophical crossroads for the for the organization. When you have an aging franchise quarterback, that ending of the marriage, that divorce is never easy. Preparing for the future while you have him is a messy situation, as we're seeing currently in Green Bay. They said, you know what, 36, 37 years old, he's got a lot of, you know, he's got a few years left. Let's add some weapons. Let's put our chips in the middle and let's make a run with our franchise quarterback and Matt Ryan and adding a Kyle Pitts is certainly going to make everybody's life easier on that offense. Not only the players, but the play caller, the defense, everybody. So I love that the team said, you know what, let's roll with Matt Ryan for another two, three, four years. How do we help him? Let's give him a weapon and a tight end, someone that's going to contribute. And I think both phases in a variety of ways in that Arthur Smith offense I'm just really excited to see them say, you know what, Matt Ryan, we believe in you. Let's get you some help. Historically, tight ends typically struggle to produce right out of the gate. I'm going to tell you, man, like a, like a Julio Jones, it seems like not going to be there here for 2021 uh, for the Atlanta Falcons. So you look at that at just the the past distribution or the how many guys, how many balls there are going to be caught in that offense. You got Calvin Ridley. I know Russell Gage is the guy that caught. I think he caught something around 70 balls a year ago. Not a lot of established pass catchers on that team. And Arthur Smith, uh, coming from Tennessee, that was it was kind of the same thing, right? It was a very tight funnel. You had A.J. Brown, you had Corey Davis, you had John U. Smith. I look at, at the potential here, uh, and maybe we're diving in a little bit into the fantasy realm here, but I look at Kyle Pitts, the guy that can come in and produce right away, uh, day one, year one, uh, for this Atlanta Falcons football team. Yeah, absolutely. And you have to imagine Arthur Smith's going to want to run the ball. Mike Davis coming over in free agency no is obviously going to be the bell cow. And then finding ways just to get pits off play action, take some shot plays down the seams. It's going to be weird seeing a tight end where number eight. It's going to take me a year or two to get used yeah, to that. But, weird, uh, but, you know, he scores a couple touchdowns wearing it. He'll he'll look just fine. All right, let's get into uh, the competition edition. A, a player that enters a little bit of a crowded room to compete in. And, and I'm looking around and obviously, look, 
they selected a bunch of players. They had a, they had a pretty deep draft class, and uh, you know, kind of looking over the the depth chart and who's a player that I, I wonder what the impact will be year one. I do wonder what Jalen Mayfield's impact will be. Uh, you know, the third round pick out of Michigan, limited sample size as a starter, only a couple of games this year, just the the previous year as well. Um, but you know, they selected Matt Hennessy. He looks like he's going to step in and be a starter at center. Drew Dahlman is another guy I feel like could come in and even compete for starting snaps at center as well. Hennessy has some guard flexibility. So is, does he show that ability to step outside? And if he does, you already have Chris Lindstrom at red right guard. I kind of wonder where, what's the path for Jalen Mayfield and does he have the ability to stick out a tackle or do they view him as an interior guy only? Uh, I'll be interested to see ultimately what his impact is uh, early on, but uh, I'm not sure if you kind of felt the same way looking at the rest because all the other guys I could see a path to, to playing time, a path to success early on. Yeah, I think that's fair. I'm right there with you on Mayfield. All right, let's get to uh, the the connecting the dots here. Is there a pick that uh, you know you could have kind of predicted if we had followed some of the breadcrumbs, some of the things we talked about? Obviously, a little bit tougher to do with a, an Atlanta team that's ushering in a new regime, coaching wise and front office wise. But uh, was there a, a pick that you were like, oh yeah, this this one makes a lot of sense? Well, you know, just kind of evaluating Terry Fontenot's first draft with the yeah. Falcons there, coming from that Saints background where he spent ten plus years down there. I didn't predict them, but looking at the results. He just had a lot of players that kind of mirrored some of his landmark picks with the Saints, whether that's taking Richie Grant in the top 100 reminds us a lot of like a Malcolm Jenkins who they took out of Ohio State. We then used for a Super Bowl here in Philadelphia. And now he was back over there uh, in New Orleans, uh, I think, last year. But just reminds me of that or Jalen Mayfield reminds me of that Andres Pete that the Saints took a couple Hmm. of years out of Stanford, kind of a heavy tackle, moved into guard. Same thing with Jalen Mayfield, kind of a heavy tackle out of Michigan, likely going to slide into guard. So not so much connecting the dots, but just kind of sitting back in your chair and saying, Terry Fontenot, very similar type of players. Similar kind of team here. I'm just going to go over the top. One thing that stood out to me, just kind of going through some of their uh, the post-draft like press conference quotes, uh, you know, whether it was Arthur Smith or whether it was Terry Fontenot, I'll tell you, they, they talked about the toughness with – almost every single pick. Uh, I think that was kind of a resounding theme for me, just kind of going through that as something that they prioritize. And the other big thing too, you know, you just look at some of the guys they picked and, and this is going to be a little bit more of the case this year as, compo- as compared to other years, but it felt like they took a lot of guys where they had a very small sample size. You know, we talked about that with Jalen well, Mayfield, but Drew Dahlman did not start a, a bunch of games. Ogundaji from Notre Dame, only a one-year starter. Frank Darby, only a one-and-a-half-year starter. Uh, you know, I, you look at a, a bunch of these guys, did not play a ton of football. Um, I, I thought that was one kind of, a, kind of an interesting thing. Like, all right, that was a resounding theme looking at the class as a whole. Yeah, I think that's fair. And that's what Dean Pease loves out of those defensive backs. So Darren Hall, Richie Grant, Avery Williams, they all have a personality of toughness, physicality, special teams, versatility, not a whole lot of finesse thrown around with those three. Uh, I think the toughness aspect definitely going to be big for them moving forward. Uh, you alluded to the Saints earlier, where Terry Fontenot comes from. Let's talk about the New Orleans Saints. I'll run through their picks real fast. Houston defensive end Peyton Turner in round one. Day two, Ohio State linebacker Pete Werner and Stanford corner Paulson Adebo. And then on day three, three selections here, Notre Dame quarterback Ian Book, Kentucky offensive tackle Landon Young, and then South Alabama wide receiver Kawan Baker. So uh, let's bring it back to Peyton Turner. Uh, let's talk about the pick, Ben. Uh, in your mind, why was Peyton Turner the selection? 
Well, versatile defensive lineman, toughness, length, a guy that can, you know, uh, set the edge on early downs and come slide in and some sub packages. They love bodies that play up and down that defensive front. So Peyton Turner was a very kind of easy projection to say, oh, he certainly fits not only play style, temperament, but versatility wise as well. There was a lot of buzz in the lead up to the draft for what those last 48, 72 hours, certainly on draft day, uh, there were rumors abound that the Saints were looking to trade up potentially as high as like the top 10 uh, looking for corner, looking for linebacker, looking for uh, for pass rusher. Uh, they end up staying put uh, and they end up with Peyton Turner. And I agree, he, he definitely checks a lot of the boxes uh, for that team. It definitely makes a, a ton of sense. And this is a, a trait-based operation. Jeff Ireland comes from that Bill Parcells school. So, uh, you know, height, weight, speed stuff matters. And you look at Peyton Turner and his body type and the way that he plays, his play personality, uh, the versatility is something that has always stood out looking at the Saints under Jeff Ireland. So, uh, yeah, that, that is certainly a, a big theme there when looking at that selection. Uh, let's now get to the best fit and situation. Who's a guy that has a really good path to early success? And this was an interesting one, man, because um, there are snaps there to be had for Paulson Adebo. I don't know that I viewed the the Saints like heavy man coverage scheme as like a perfect fit for him. I thought that he'd be more uh, more of a fit for like a zone heavy scheme. But I like Paulson Adebo. I think you like Paulson Adebo as well. Uh, with the, the the turnover they've had in the secondary, uh, that's a guy that I look at and say, yeah, like he he's got the ability to compete for early snaps. I don't see why not. You know, you see uh, Patrick Robinson in front of him on the depth chart there, which I think that could be a great competition this summer into the preseason. And maybe he doesn't win it right away, but a guy can work his way into that starting role at some point during the 2021 season. But a lot of interesting bodies on the back end there. Marshawn Lattimore, Marcus Williams, Malcolm Jenkins just need to figure out who that next cornerback spot's going to be. So maybe it's a debut. Maybe a debo slides into the nickel spot where they like a physical, tough presence as well. Yep. They have True. Chauncey Gardner-Johnson there. So uh, I love Paulson Adebo and his potential track to getting on the field. Who uh, who plays the most out of this class when you look at just pure snap count in your mind? Who plays the most? You know, I'm going to say Peyton Turner. Just I think there's obviously a need uh, on the front replacing Trey Hendrickson, replacing uh, Malcolm Brown, who left in free agency. So I think there's snaps to go around on the front. But Paulson Adebo, if he wins that spot in the summer, He's going to be a 900,000 yeah. snapper, so uh, barring injury. So, but I'll go with uh, I'll go with Peyton Turner right now. What do you think in terms of like usage? We studied that Saints team a lot over the last couple of years. They played the Eagles uh, often. Trey Hendrickson had, was kind of the you know the listed starter. Obviously played in sub, um, and then Marcus Davenport would come on in passing downs, and whether he's lined up inside or outside. I wonder if they will keep Davenport in that role and then kind of plug Peyton Turner into that Hendrickson spot. Or if they took Davenport and make him more of a full-time player, and, and then maybe uh, you take your time with Peyton Turner. Now I'm thinking it's a little bit more of the latter. And yeah. I think the Trey Hendrickson role may get slightly replaced with Zach Bond, who they took in the third round point. last year out of Wisconsin, yeah. which was decent draft capital, a guy that they had high expectations of, doesn't have the length of a Davenport or a Peyton Turner, certainly fits more of the profile, of the Trey Hendrickson. So just visually and aesthetically, I think that's more of a transition. Just going over the top here. Any other, any big thoughts uh, on the saints overall? I think one of the big things, this was, it was not surprising to me to hear about the buzz about them potentially trading up because uh, since Jeff Island has been there, that has been a hallmark. They are not afraid to target their guys and move up the board. Uh, you know, some, te- some teams are very much known for trading down. You, know, you go to Minnesota and New England, you know, Seattle, uh, certainly what Carolina has done over the last couple of years. They like to trade down. 
the Saints love to trade up. And whether it was Marcus Davenport a couple of years ago on day one, or you go day two, just look at the day two selections lately. You know, they traded up for Paulson and Debo. Last year, they traded up for both Zach Bond and Adam Trotman on day two. The year before, they traded up for Eric McCoy. They traded for, up for Alvin Kamara. They traded up for Von Bell. I mean, they've they've traded up for a lot of early picks. Um, so hearing that they were in the in the in the uh, the rumor mill for trying to move up in this draft was not a shock to me. I felt like they addressed a lot of areas of need. I didn't feel like any of these yeah. were, oh, that's a crowded room or, oh, they already have that spot. We obviously had a need at defensive end. We got Peyton Turner round one. Alex Anzalone left in free agency. Huge hole at linebacker next to Demario Davis. Some people were surprised that Pete Werner went in the second round, but not the Saints. They wanted a three-down linebacker that can cover, that can blitz, and that's Pete Werner for you. So in Paul Adebo, there was a need at corner. That was their third pick in the third round. So I felt like they were just checking a lot of boxes where they needed a player and they needed a potential starter moving into the season. All right, let's get to our last team that you and I are going to cover here for the 2021 NFL Draft, Ben. The Super Bowl champ, Tampa Bay Bucks. Uh, I'll run through their selections really fast. Day one, Washington pass rusher Joe Tryon was the 32nd pick in the draft. Day two, Florida quarterback Kyle Trask and Notre Dame offensive lineman Robert Hainsey, who was a right tackle, seems to transition inside the guard here for the Bucks. Day three, wide receiver Jalen Darden, the speedster from North Texas, Auburn linebacker K.J. Britt, BYU corner Chris Wilcox, and then Houston linebacker Grant Stewart was Mr. Relevant in the entire draft. Uh, ben, let's go to the top pick here, Joe Tryon. In your mind, why was he the selection? Well, I think Tampa Bay is a team that, would rather the foundational players and adding more glitz and glamour and kind of role players. So anytime you can address the trenches, whether it's backup reserve offensive linemen, you know, second team defensive linemen that we expect Joe Tryon to be one of those sturdy sound players on that second line at defensive end behind Jason Pierre-Paul, behind Sue, uh, behind Shaq Barrett. Obviously, there's some bodies in front of him. But he's a really tough player, kind of a run-first defensive lineman. He's tough. He's physical. He's long. Checks a lot of boxes of these players they like up front here. Even some of the inside guys like William Golson, they love the length. So I think Joe Tryon's a perfect sub-package player. And then we'll see in a year or two, maybe he ends up being a starting defensive end. Just seems like the Anthony Nelson type of player they took two years earlier out of Iowa in the fourth round. Just a first round version of a little bit more of a souped up version. So, right. uh, you know, just because everyone's coming back and they're off a Super Bowl doesn't mean, hey, let's go find something sexy or, you know, a cool piece to work into the offense or a sub package player. I just love that it was more of a foundational piece and a tough trench player. And this is a guy that, look, when you look at their pass rushers, I mean, JPP's getting a little bit older, obviously. Uh, you know, and Shaq Barrett with his contract situation, we'll see. Um, Joe Tryon, I mean, yeah, maybe it's not for 2021, but when you get to 2022, 2023, I mean, this is a guy that you feel can turn into a starter. And he, he's obviously a little bit raw, a little bit green in terms of playing experience. He's got some time to be able to mature uh, into that role. Uh, you talked about the, them not feeling the need to jump into a, a sexy new toy on offense. Well, that's the guy I'm going to say when I go into my top, my day three <laughs> impact. Uh, I'm going to go with Jalen Darden, the wide receiver from North Texas. And this is a Bruce Arians pick uh, through and through. And you go back um, to his days in Arizona, uh, certainly here in Tampa as well. He wants speed, 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 more speed. His offense is vertical. It is all about attacking downfield, putting pressure on defenses. And Jalen Darden uh, fits that model. I know it's a crowded room. 
a ton of receivers out there down there in Tampa. Uh, but Jalen Darden is a guy that he's already raised some eyebrows based on reports uh, from early camps and stuff. But uh, Jalen Darden has a really intriguing skill set. And uh, as an early day three pick, I'm interested to see the impact he can have. And maybe it's not felt from a fantasy standpoint, but just a, from a, a pure football standpoint, uh, day, you know, as those one of those day three picks, uh, he's a guy to keep an eye on year one. Yeah, I think that's the best value on day three and getting him in the fourth round. I think he's a guy that's going to be easy to involve in the offense has a little bit of a different skill set than a Chris Godwin or Mike Evans or some of those tight ends like Brait or Gronkowski. So I'm looking right at Scotty Miller, putting his picture in my locker and say, I'm coming for your snaps. I want the yak opportunities. I want the shot plays. I could be the returner. I'll run down on special teams. You know, just being that fourth, fifth receiver in the room, I think Jalen Darden's coming for that spot. But if it's not, I think it's definitely a type of player and skill set you can find use of. Now, we'll see if he gets along with Tom Brady. There's obviously a big aspect of timing in the offense. So if he hits it off with Brady in camp, Jalen Darden could be one of those studs that you walk away with, you know, uh, games like three for 120 and two touchdowns, just like Scotty Miller did in the uh, NFC Championship game. Small school speedster, middle rounds from a, a really tiny program, kind of uh, the John Brown profile for uh, for Bruce Arians out in Arizona. <laughs> yeah, that, that worked out for him, certainly. Yeah, yeah no, no question. Uh, let's now, I got one quick, quick question for you before we go over the top here. When you look at these two linebackers on day three, KJ Britt and Grant Stewart, Obviously, kind of uh, different skill sets, right? Uh, what KJ Britt, more of that downhill thumper in the box. Grant Stewart, undersized, former safety, kind of a run and chase kind of player. How do you view both of those guys and the fit in the Todd Bowles defense? That's a really good question. Obviously, it's not a position of need having two stud linebackers in Devin White and Levante David, but I really like them just for their involvement in special teams. Yeah. I think adding more young special teamers to this team, you know, whether it's the two linebackers, whether it's Chris Wilcox coming out of BYU, a couple other players I think are going to be great contributors, like a Jalen Darden is going to be a great gunner and a great jammer or a returner, whatever they want. But KJ Britt and Grant Stewart are interesting players on day three, two senior bowl players that we expect to go on day three. To be honest with you, Fran, I'm not entirely sure how they're going to fit in. I don't know if they're going to be the run and chase type like a Levante David's turned into. I don't know if Grant Stewart has enough size and thumping to really be a Mike or a Will linebacker at the next level. Stewart might be a uh, kind of a big nickel type of presence playing out in space as an outside linebacker. So uh, I think at the end of the day, very high floor, high character guys, and they're going to be great special teamers. And building off what exactly what you just said, I think, you know, looking big picture at this class, you know, there's been a lot of talk about the Bucks, and obviously they, they bring everybody back. They're running it back. Same squad on both sides. Almost every single starter uh, back on that team and all, almost every single key role player back on that team. So you go into this draft and you say, all right, well, how do you draft? If you're a team that doesn't have needs, let's just go best player available. And, and we're just going to supplement the roster with the, as much talent as we possibly can. And it feels like Jason Light, that's the approach that they took and said, uh, regardless of what the, the contract situation is in a certain room or what the needs are and what you might think we need, Hey, we're going to just go in and let the board come to us and take the best player. And I think we talk about this all the time when it comes to that discussion of need versus best player available. It really does come down to where you are in the team building process. If it's early on and you are uh, just get, you're in that early part of the rebuild, you're going to trend more best player available. If you're on the brink and say, hey, we're, we're trying to compete for a championship and we're, we're really close, we're one player away. Yeah, you might target needs here and there. If you're a team like the Bucs, you've, you've just reached the mountaintop and you feel good about a lot of different stuff, then maybe you trend more towards best player available again. So it's just interesting how that the life cycle of the team building philosophy goes. 
And Fran, working the broadcast, the speed at which the Bucks submitted their picks. This really? Year, I promise you it was best player available. And they literally <laughs> said, we're on the clock. Who do we got? Top of the board. Send it in. That's the Joe great. Tryon pick took eight seconds. It was amazing. And I know they were the last in round one. Probably wanted to go to bed at that hour and do their media stuff. But every pick seemed like it was bang, bang, bang. Look at the top of the board. Send it in. Top of the board. Send it in. That's awesome. I, probably not true to 100%. But <laughs> the way and the speed in which they uh, had the conviction in their picks makes you think that. I love that. That's a good insight there <laughs> to wrap us up here on our recap of the 2021 NFL draft. Ben, uh, it's been fun to be able to go through all these players. We're going to continue talking, obviously, a little bit historical over, over the next couple of uh, the next couple of weeks, and we're going to talk big-picture philosophy at certain positions. Uh, we'll be doing all that with yourself and with, uh, with Dane Brugler here over the next few weeks. Before we dive into this 2022 class, I know you've done a lot of work. Uh, I've started to, to stick my toe in the water a little bit as well, uh, but we'll talk to you here next week right here on the Journey of the Draft podcast presented by Life Brand. Now, let's get into the blueprint here with Josh Norris to talk about those Carolina Panthers. The Philadelphia Eagles are now on Google Home and Amazon Alexa devices. Want to hear Merrill Reese before the season gets underway? Simply say, hey Google, talk to Philadelphia Eagles or Alexa, open Philadelphia Eagles and enjoy. Learn more at philadelphiaeagles.com voice. All 32 teams are always under construction. How are they being built? Let's check out the blueprint. Well, as I teased it earlier, we were welcoming my good friend, Josh Norris, here to the show. You can find his work over at The Underdog. The Underdog Football Show has quickly become one of my favorite podcasts, a go-to listen uh, on a weekly basis. And Josh, thanks for joining us once again here on the Journey of the Draft podcast. This is perfect timing. Underdog is now available in Pennsylvania as of about two weeks ago. So any of you out there that love fantasy football, Underdog is great because it's just drafting and it sets your optimal lineup from there on out. So go and try it. Uh, Fran, you know, I love you. You know, I love talking with you. You know, I love reminiscing on what just happened in the draft. And most importantly, like process and what we can take from these teams because they only have to be honest through free agency, through their wallets and through draft picks. And so I think we actually learn a lot about these teams and what they want them to be uh, during this part of the calendar. It's as close as we get to truth serum for sure. And, you know, it's something you and I talk about offline all the time. And uh, I guess just to kind of lead us into this discussion, uh, focusing in on the Carolina Panthers, obviously Matt rule year two as general manager first year with Scott Fitterer coming over from Seattle, Uh, obviously. So a small sample size that we're working with, but given those two entities with, with Matt rule and with Scott Fitterer, what were a couple of the the pre-existing trends knowing those two guys that uh, you maybe had your eye on coming into this draft before uh, draft weekend got started? Well, I think we have to take it even further back and, you know, talk about Marty Herney and, and Dave Gettleman for a moment, because for decades it felt like, because Marty was there and then left and then was there again in between, you know, Gettleman being GM, they had no process. It was no like round to round decisions that you could hang your hat on and be like, oh, well, they value athleticism. Oh, they value these measurables. Oh, they value big schools. It was all over the map. And I think because of that, they had a solid track record in certain rounds. Like first round picks for Marty Herney were fantastic. But as you went on, there was nothing that you could, that, that you could, you know, relate to and predict when we were getting to acquiring uh, and, and projecting draft picks. That's totally different now. And from a process standpoint, obviously with Matt Rule, he cares about athletes. He's cared about that at Temple. He cared about that at Baylor. He created an edge for him. And I think because of, like, the reason is he believes in his 
ability to coach and his coach's ability to coach. And so if you can have someone with just natural athleticism, you can work them into exactly the areas that you want them to succeed in and put them in positions to win in. And then you bring in Scott Fitterer, who coming from Seattle understands the importance of acquiring as many darts as possible. Uh, That is important when we consider draft prospects because about the best teams hit on about 30 to 40 to 50% of their draft picks. So while we all think we know prospects when we watch them and we can evaluate them, the facts are that we don't. And so just having more possibilities and opportunities to, to draft these players along with drafting athletes, that's going to be the process that we see moving forward with the rule and fitter connection. Yeah, and I think that that really was a prevalent theme coming out of this, which I guess we can kind of get into, just looking at uh, these picks as a whole. And for our listeners, I'll just kind of buzz through them really fast. Uh, J.C. Horn in round one. On day two, Terrace Marshall, the wide receiver from LSU. Brady Christensen, the offensive lineman from BYU. And Tommy Trimble, the tight end from Notre Dame. And then a slew of day three selections after a bunch of trade downs. You've got running back Chuba Hubbard from Oklahoma State. Davion Nixon, the D tackle from Iowa. Keith Taylor, the the corner from Washington. Uh, offensive guard Deontay Brown from Alabama. Shai Smith, the wide receiver from South Carolina. Long snapper Thomas Fletcher from the Crimson Tide. And defensive tackle, nose tackle, I should say, uh, Phil Hoskins from Kentucky. So uh, having gone through all of these picks, I guess real quick, let's just kind of focus in on J.C. Horn. In your yep. mind, why was he the pick over everybody else that was on the board? There were quarterbacks there, offensive linemen available. Uh, I know that when we did our uh, our mock draft before, I think you had had them selecting Rayshon Slater. In your mind, why do you feel Horn was the selection? First of all, friend, don't act like I didn't do well in mock drafts this year. Well, you know? I, look, I mean, that goes without saying. People, I feel like that's going to be on your gravestone, right? I mean, J- Josh Norris, best predictor of a mock, the best mock draft ever in history. Uh, at least it's going to be in Canton, if not. <laughs> so we'll, we'll get there eventually. Exactly right. Uh, I, I believe if Panay Sewell was on the board, he would have been their right. selection at number eight. Makes sense. Um, he he was not. In fact, the Lions wanted to trade up for Panay Sewell at number four. Yep. Um, there was a lot of buzz for months that the Panthers were interested in a quarterback. And often Justin Fields was mocked there to number eight. Uh, you know me, I had not been on that train because I, I firmly believe that if the Panthers wanted to take a quarterback, um, not name Trevor Lawrence and Zach Wilson, they would have traded up to that number three spot because right. it was and will continue to be a key to their long-term growth as a team to acquire a veteran quarterback. It, it kind of got to the point where they just didn't want Teddy to be on the roster this year and they missed out on Matthew Stafford while offering the number eight overall pick. So I think they'll revisit that unless Sam Darnold does, you know, win the starting job for himself moving forward. But to your point with JC Horn, one, he's an alpha personality. Two, he's an incredible athlete. Three, his resume at South Carolina is maybe unlike nearly any corner that we've seen enter the NFL, where you can go from covering Devontae Smith and what, 2019, and then all those other receivers and Jerry Judy and Henry Ruggs on, on different snaps. Then this year you go from Kyle Pitts to Elijah Moore. Like every single time South Carolina, which as a team is not, you know, a elite SEC football college, sure. um, his willingness to raise his hand and be like, I'm going to cover the other team's alpha wide receiver. It doesn't matter if they're in the slot or on the outside. That's what this defense needed. And from a defensive construction standpoint, I think the Panthers understand that they can't be great at every single spot. Few defenses can in the league, maybe two or three to four. So 
I think people are going to start trying to copy maybe like what the Chiefs are doing, where you have three to four to five to six explosive playmakers, where when the other team is chasing the scoreboard, uh, they can make significant big plays to like turn the tide on third down or, or a forced turnover on a sack fumble, so on and so forth. And that team can do that now. Brian Burns, yep. I mean, incredible motor, incredible athleticism. And like those extended plays where a lot of sacks come from, he can chase it down. Uh, Hassan Reddick and JC Horn almost certainly shadowing, following the team's opposing number one corner. And I even mentioned Jeremy Chin and linebackers and Derek Brown. So this team finally has some individual explosive playmakers on it. To me, too, when you talk about J.C. Horn and just like the edge that he plays with, you talked about the confidence and the, the competitiveness there. To me, and I, I, was, I've got, I go back with, with Coach Rule to uh, both of our days at, at Temple. I was not there when he was a head coach. I was there when he was an assistant. And, you know, I think when you talk about Matt and look at some of the players that he has brought in wherever he's been, whether it's been uh, at Temple and the Temple Tough Mantra, whether it's been at Baylor uh, and now certainly with Carolina – the guy, this is you're talking about a guy who grew up Western PA, you know, walks on at Penn State, defensive players, a linebacker. He's looking for those, those tough guys as well. I've seen him go literally head to head, like put a helmet on and go head to head with Terrence Knighton, hmm. with Andre Neblet, you know, with guys in practice. Um, you know, this is so I think toughness, competitiveness will always be something that he's searching for as well. Um, but the, the, you talk about the athleticism and, and JC Horn checked all those boxes. I think that that certainly uh, made a lot of sense with that fit. And I do think it's notable as well that, you know, when you look back, the, one of the things that I did notice with Marty Herney over the years, they always were very, uh, I, I don't want to say predictable from that standpoint, but a lot of the, their first round picks, they, you're, ta- you're talking top 30 visits, Big names. heavy, heavy contingent at the pro yep. day. Uh, you know, always the combine, you know, they visit with them at the combine, lots of exposures uh, to that guy. And you always kind of focus in, all right, it's going to be one of these two or three guys. With the Panthers this year, I mean, they were, you had rumors about quarterback from notable uh, sources, you know, in the media, rumors about quarterback, rumors about offensive line. JC Horn was certainly, uh, you know, in the discussion as well. Uh, wide receiver, could they go that direction? So uh, like, I feel like they covered their tracks pretty well uh, in regards to the selection as well. Yeah. Just hopefully Josh Norris is among those draft insiders moving <laughs> forward. Uh, no, I'm kidding. Look, you're, you're totally right. Especially with Dave Gettleman, they call them like complete process prospects. Yeah, like whenever right. we do get visits again, whenever we do get, you know, uh, private workouts again, watch out for the giants because in their past they under Dave Gettleman. And then when Dave Gettleman was the Panthers, if a person checks all those boxes, almost assuredly they'll take them. They'll take them early on. Yeah. That I'm not going to say like the Panthers defense is going to be great, but this does take them in a step forward in a division that is still loaded with wide receivers. Like think about it six times a year, we're going to see uh, JC Horn match up against Michael Thomas. You know, that's twice a year. Then we're going to get Calvin Ridley and Cal Pitts, maybe even Julio Jones. Uh, we're going to get him against Mike Evans and Chris Godwin and Antonio Brown. And then all the other, like there are so few, it seems like you can correct me if I'm wrong. We hear about top corners and there are a lot of them across the league, but not many travel. Not many travel. Yep. And I'm not going to say JC Horn won every single one of those matchups because if you go back and like watch 2019, Devontae Smith, that was a, a, a great battle that those two had, but he's willing to do it. And what Phil Snow and Matt Rule do so well is, is they do try to create interesting fronts and, and pressure packages. Yep. And so when you have one corner on the outside that you think can lock up the opposing guy, that opens up some really exciting things that you can do with the rest of the field. To me, coming out of this, you know, we talked about athleticism standpoint, 
that uh, we obviously we saw that uh, trying to acquire as many darts as possible. We saw that they traded down a number of times uh, in this draft coming out of this class. Were there any other kind of trends that stood out to you, uh, you know, with this organization and the, and the way they approached it? Well, I love the Terrace Marshall pick at number two in the second round, 59 overall. Um, you know me, you, I, you've I, got the Joe Brady connection there as well. I, and that's something that we've seen from Matt Rule in his past, that if if he has understanding with someone, with Robbie Anderson at Temple, with yeah. his son Reddick at Temple, even guys he's recruited in their past, his first video with the Panthers when they introduced him, he, in the hallway, saw Shaq Thompson and DJ Moore and was giving DJ stick because you, he turned him down at Temple yeah. or Baylor and went to Maryland instead. So he remembers these things, and I think he still has that, you know, recruiting blood in him. Um, but Terrace Marshall, I love the player. I love the prospect did, so yep. much. And you and I texted about this constantly. Uh, this is someone who one for this class has unique size, almost like it's uncommon size, at least in, in the 2021 class, six, one, two, 10, six, two, two, 10, and was an outside and inside player. And it's not just production in his final season, you know, after Justin Jefferson left after Jamar Chase opted out, people forget that. I think in what 2019, he had 13 freaking touchdowns with Joe Brady and the third wide receiver on the Panthers is more important from a pass game standpoint than the number one tight end Hmm. Um, because they use a lot of 11 personnel. They use that number three wide receiver all over the place. Curtis Samuel last year, and I'm not saying the two are similar talents, but he played about 70% of his snaps in the slot. You know, DJ Moore played about 20% of his. Robbie Anderson played about 20% of his. They like to move those guys around all the time. And I actually think if you look back at where the Panthers were weakest, it was on final drives, it was on attempted fourth down conversions, and it was in red zone situations. Um, I think Robbie Anderson and DJ Moore are fantastic, but neither have the size and potential end zone, red zone target that, you know, Terrace Marshall was so good, especially with Joe Brady with at LSU, that that could be a major area where Terrace Marshall uh, does well. Listen, if he stays healthy and if he plays well in the preseason, he should absolutely be locked into the number three spot because he offers that versatility that like David Moore does not. David Moore is a vertical role player. And so not having that number three dynamic wide receiver who is super young was the best in contested catches across college football. It's an exciting player to put in this offense. Last question for you here, Josh. That's it. All, That's all the time I, I, we no, have. No, come on. I want to. I want to get you in and out. You're a busy guy, man. I, okay. I got well, you. You got plenty of underblocking to do. We've got. You can always go check out all of that <laughs> great work uh, over at the Underdog. The last question for you is this: There's always discussion about need versus best player available. When you look at, at this regime with Scott Fitter and Matt Rule, how do you feel that they approached that here this year, and how do you feel that that will be uh, kind of discerned by them moving forward? Just in general, I think best player available is a load of bollocks. Like in, in, in the first two rounds. For the know, most I part, that. I do agree with you. Yes. Yes. Um, now, there are exceptions. Of course. But most of the time, it's just shocking how often best player also equates to, oh, this is a need. Best and it might not be a exactly. need. Yeah. Yep. It might not be a need in year one, but almost certainly is a need in the next year when exactly. you're replacing a declining player on a massive contract. That always seems to be how it works out. Um, what, what I am going to take away is they actually view players in clusters and the Panthers released a great video uh, called confidential. I think when uh, they gave really in depth behind the scenes and even like trade offers that they were getting with from the Minnesota Vikings and some of these other teams. And like on, on day two, when they had a cluster of Terrace Marshall and Brady Christensen, and I'm sure a few other players, 
they were like, oh, well, we know we can get Terrace Marshall later in round two because he dealt with some injuries. And, you know, if we get one of these players of this group of eight, if you move down 15 spots, it's going to work out. And you're hearing that more and more and more when more of this information is, is released across the NFL. I do want to give a shout out to Tommy Tremble, who, like, I love Kyle Pitts as a prospect. But you and I have talked about this constantly, that it takes tight ends sometimes until their second team or their second contract to like really hit their stride. And so while we have felt great about, I don't know, OJ Howard's evaluation, TG Hawkinson's evaluation, no offense, I can keep going on and on and on down the list. Um, if I were an NFL team, I would love to either make a move for those talented players that haven't lived up to expectations that were drafted in the first or second round on their first team or in free agency, or I want to take an athletic tight end on day three that we can hopefully grow his game in the next two or three years. And Tommy Trimble might, might be that. I mean, he blocks your face off. No question. Um, and he has a great athletic profile. It wasn't, you know, put to use as a receiver all the time at Notre Dame, but like a low key loss for the Panthers was Chris Manhurts going to the Jacksonville Jaguars. Cause I know Urban Meyer believes that Manhurts might be the best blocking tight end in the NFL, and I think the Panthers might believe that as well. And so it, it wouldn't be shocking at all if Tommy Trimble comes in and acts kind of like that sixth offensive lineman and then kind of grows his game from there as it slows down for him. And everybody watched that Joe Brady offense in 2019 and Joe Burrow and undefeated and all that. You look back at Thaddeus Moss on the role he played in that offense as kind of a yep. do everything player, not a high volume pass target, but you know could line up in the backfield, was lined up detached, was you know lined up as a wing, and you know used as a lead blocker and run game. I, Tommy Trevor could do all of those different things uh, once he grows into the role. Still a very young player, but athletic with uh, with upside for sure. Uh, uh, no, before we get out of here, I have questions yes. for you. Oh, oh, okay. All right, let's let's switch roles here. Go ahead. Devonte Smith right now on underdog, by the way, <laughs> if you are a first time user, deposit anything, skip the guacamole at Chipotle, you get a free $25 over an underdog. The app is great. Desktop is great as well. Devonte Smith is going as wide receiver 37. That's after Will Fuller. That's after obviously Jamar Chase. That's after Kenny Galladay, a few other names. And I think a main reason for that, Fran, is that people believe like the Eagles just aren't going to throw this year. Like they might be bottom three, bottom five in pass attempts, maybe even lowest in the league. Where do you think they're going to end up? Like, do you think they're going to surprise people with how much they throw? Because even if it's like 10th to the bottom or even league average, Devontae Smith is going to see a boatload of those and could be an extreme value for all of us. I, to me, I just look at the way that this coaching staff is constructed. I look at the way the the uh, the philosophy of ownership and, and the decision makers, and, and it's it's geared towards the passing game. And you look at Nick Sirianni as geared towards the passing game. It would shock me if they became a pure, you know, Ravens run the football over and over. I, that that would that would surprise me. Um, that said, are there going to be games where that, that is the case? Sure. But uh, I think you look at the way that Devontae Smith and Jalen Rager could be used in this offense. Uh, certainly, uh, yards after catch, finding ways to get those guys open. You look at the what the, what the way that that offense in Indianapolis was structured uh, last year, they, you know, finding ways to get Michael Pittman the ball and crossing routes and shallow crosses where Paris Campbell was used early on, you know, whenever he's been healthy. Uh, a lot of those similar kind of situations I think you'll see for Devontae Smith uh, and Jalen Rager here this year. Because last year, the Ravens were lowest in pass attempts, 406. Yep. Then it was the Patriots at 440, the Titans at 485. I mean, both Jalen Hurts 
and Devontae Smith and if Dallas Goddard even yep. are, are all being drafted like the Eagles are going to be in that area. And lest we forget, like, I think he averaged like Jalen Hurts at 35 pass attempts and three starts at some point last season. It's I'm not going to say he's going to get to that point, but I mean, I can't wait for Dallas Goddard. I hope he stays healthy. He's being drafted as a tight end seven, but he's one that might be able to jump up um, if, if he does get some opportunity. And like it's 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 an offense that I think can shock people. It's a team that I think can shock people because I think they're third to the bottom or or even last predicted in their division right now. And uh, if all the pieces align, the talent's there. Just need that offensive line to stay healthy, right, Fran? I did hear uh, somebody smart say that he liked them as their best long shot division winner on a recent podcast. So uh, that was underdog football show, everyone. That's right. Well, Josh, uh, thanks so much for joining us here once again on the Journey of the Draft podcast presented by Life Brand. Uh, we'll talk to you soon, man. We'll see you uh, hopefully very soon. See you, buddy. Now it's time to hear from you, the fans, in the draft mailbag. Always fun catching up with my friend Josh Naros, who just, uh, again, make sure you go and listen to wherever his content uh, is, whether it's on Twitter, whether it's on the Underdog Football Show, over at the Underblog. Uh, he does an outstanding job. He and Hayden Winks, who's been on the show as well uh, in the past. Now, uh, let's transition to our last segment here, Draft Mailbag, where uh, we've got one comment from you guys at home, but we've got a couple more here in the queue as well. But we're going to hit on uh, Bear Cub Fan, who left a fa- five-star review saying, hi, I'm a, I'm a huge Chicago Bears fan, but I loved listening to the Devontae Smith podcast. And I've been, uh, that is a, a podcast we released a couple weeks ago. It's our journey series where uh, the third one just dropped, where we just did the episode uh, focused in on all of the Eagles' day three selections uh, and their journeys from college to the NFL. Uh, and that is catered more towards the Eagles fan, but Bear Cub fan, excited uh, to hear from you and hear that even though you aren't just an Eagles fan, you enjoyed getting our analysis all through the process. And look, whether you're an Eagles fan or not, that's why you're listening to the show, right? We are always talking about players all around the country that are drafted at all three levels. Uh, you know, we had deep, deep analysis on Kenny Gainwell, the running back from Memphis, who was a fifth round pick going back to his freshman year back in 2019. We were talking about uh, Kenny Gainwell right here on the show. So uh, plenty of examples of that over the last couple of weeks here uh, on the that journey series, which has come to an end. Uh, like I said earlier, I'm excited for what we've got coming up here on the Journey of the Draft podcast. We're going to have a lot of really fun guests. We're going to have some fun discussions to, to get into. And again, we're going to dive into this 22 class uh, starting next month, just a few weeks away uh, from our conference preview. So we'll start that in the middle of July. Until then, we'll talk to you next week right here on the Journey of the Draft podcast presented by LifeBrand. Introducing Season 2 of the Return Game podcast, Birds, Boys, and Bad Blood, presented by NovaCare Rehabilitation. When it comes to the Eagles-Cowboys rivalry, you think you know the whole story, but there is more. So, so much more, and we're about to uncover it all. And I think back to some of my favorite memories in the rivalry, and I remember exactly where I was, who I was with, what I was doing for so many of these games. Lito Shepard's interception to ruin T.O.'s return to Philly. I remember leaping off the couch in my house where I grew up and nearly punching the ceiling. I jumped so high. The pickle juice game. I was actually on a family vacation in Disney World. We made sure we were back at our hotel so that we did not miss that game. 44-6. to I remember I was watching that game from a bar near the mall where I was finishing up Christmas shopping. Earlier that day, I was with one of my best friends. Obviously, we couldn't miss the game, so we made sure we were geared up up. We had a good spot in front of a big screen. We went through like 18 plates of appetizers that day. And I have these memories because these games meant so much and continue to mean so much to us as Eagles fans. So if you want to relish some of those great moments in the rivalry, be sure to go subscribe to Return Game and Eagles Entertainment original podcast. Subscribe now wherever you listen to podcasts.